Hello, and welcome to the Faith Church Podcast channel. We exist to reach people and connect them to God and others. If you'd like more information about Faith Church or would like to schedule a visit sometime, visit our website at www.igotofaith.com. We can only do what we do because of the generosity of our Faith Church family. If you'd like to contribute to our ministry, you can do so by visiting our website at www.igotofaith.com and hit the giving tab. Or you can text the amount of your contribution to 256-483-4991. Both of these options will send you to a safe and secure server. Your giving is much appreciated. Now, get ready as our lead pastor, Steve Husky, continues with part four of his series, Blind Faith. Good morning, Faith Church. Great to see you guys today. I don't know about you guys, but I'm fired up to be here. I, I love my Faith Church family. Man, love what God's doing here. It could be the coffee. I drank a lot of coffee, but I think it's you guys. I think it's Jesus. So listen, man, great to have you guys here. Again, my name is Steve Husky. I'm the lead pastor. It's our privilege to host you here. Um, I know a lot of people are traveling for some reason, but we're glad that you're here this morning. I want to welcome all those who are watching online. Can we give some love? We have a group traveling. Our faith classics are down in Atlanta, Georgia, visiting one of my favorite churches, Andy Stanley's Church, North Point. Can we give them some love? Because we know they're tuning in. But we are glad you're here, man. We are finishing up a series that we started on Easter Sunday entitled Blind Faith. And basically it's this, is that we all have questions. We have questions about life. We have questions about parenting and marriage and like just how it all works. And really some of the biggest questions that you and I have are faith questions. And the reason that they're the biggest is because I believe they hold the most consequences. And so we've been answering questions like this. Is Jesus really the only way to heaven? Is um, why would a good God send people to hell? Does God care? Why does he let bad things happen to good people? And so if you've not been here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those messages. They're always archived online at igotofaith.com. Maybe they're not just good for you. Maybe you can direct a friend who's struggling with some of those questions themselves, target them there, allow them to hear those messages. Because again, I, here's, here's the thing is I think sometimes those are big questions. I think the answers are sometimes hard to get our arms around. Sometimes it's really hard to grasp. But I think there are really good answers to some of the toughest questions that we have. And so today, as we end this series, I'm going to answer, I think, one of the most challenging questions. And I'm just going to give you kind of this warning up front. I love to have fun. I love to joke in service. And really, my goal as your pastor is that every week that when you come here, number one, you experience life change. But number two, when you leave, you know what was preached and how it applies to your life. So, like, you get it, it makes sense, go do something with it. Today is not an exception, but I'm just going to tell you, today is a little textbook, it's a little heady, it's a little challenging, and so you're going to have to kind of work today with me, okay? You're going to have to want to get through this information, and my hope is that it's going to make you better. Here's why. It's because we're going to tackle this question, is the Bible reliable? Is this book that we hold in our hands that answers kind of the big life, faith, heaven, hell, death questions, is it God's word? Does it make sense? Is it... Is it really true? Because people ask questions like this, and I think they're fair questions. Like, is this all a myth? Was it, like, especially the Gospels, were they a myth? And, you know, through hundreds and ultimately thousands of years, we've accepted it as true, even though it was never intended as true? Or better yet, was it originally written true, but through copies of copies of copies, was it changed over the years, and now what was originally written isn't what was said in the very beginning in the first place? We make claims like this, that it's God's word, even though it's written by men. So which is it? Is it God's word or is it man's word? And I think, again, because it comes back down to what the Bible is and the way we value the Bible, I think it's some big questions we have to answer. Again, is the Bible reliable? 
Let me first say this, what the Bible is, we talk about it. The Bible is a written revelation of the living God and our redemptive plan for humanity. So again, when, when you read the Bible, it's, it's, it's written out. And the whole purpose of the Bible is God revealing who he is, what God is like, what you can count on, his character. And ultimately, it's the revelation of his redemptive plan for humanity, his goal for, for ultimately you and I and all of humanity. Now, that's my, that's my interpretation. That's my definition of what the Bible is. There's something a little more to it, a little more basic. And here's, here's what, really what the Bible is. If you know this, the Bible is not a book. It's a collection of books. In fact, it's 66 books divided into two testament or covenants. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's 33 books, I'm sorry, 39 books in the Old Testament, and it covers from the beginning of creation until about 450 B.C. and ultimately covers the nation of Israel. The New Testament is 27 books, and it covers from the time of the birth of Christ until about 100 A.D., covers the life of Jesus and the beginning and the formative years of the church. Now, here's just a given. I'm just throwing this in for free. You don't have to give extra for this or nothing. But Old Testament, there's three words in old, nine words in, uh, nine letters in Testament. So there's 39. If you multiply three times nine, you get 27, the number of books in the New Testament. <laughs> Boom, I can end right there. <laughs> so that just helps you remember. But here's why that's so important. This is why this is so important is because when you compare the Bible to other major religious texts, and I'm not here, I don't, have to, I don't have to put other religions or other beliefs under my feet or make them look bad to elevate myself, but this is just for contrasting or comparative things. So when you compare the Bible to other major religious texts, there's something really significant that happens. For example, the, the, the writings of Buddhism, uh, the Tripitaka, it ultimately is just the record of the recording of the oral messages of, a, of the Buddha. So it's just kind of one man's perspective. The, the book for those who are Muslim is the Quran, and it's just the message of one man, Muhammad. The difference of the Bible is huge, and here's why. is because it's not the writing of one person by one person. It's not that. Here's what you need to know about the Bible. It's not one book. It's 66 books written by 44 authors from all different backgrounds, from fishermen to kings to rabbis. It's written over, um, over 1,500 years in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And when you take all of that together, this long history of writing by all these different writers, you have one continuous theme throughout Scripture. The fact that all of that recorded together writes one story. Some people call it the red thread of redemption. That from the beginning of the Old Testament to the close out of the New Testament, you have God loving a broken humanity and reaching out to us, and it never veers. The Bible tells one overarching story with one underlying fact. The overarching story is God is reaching us. The underlying fact is we are lost and need him, and only he can reach us. We can't reach him. Let me tell you why that's important. There's a guy, I introduced his name in the beginning of this series, the great resource, if you were interested in studying some of these things later. A guy by the name of Josh McDowell, who is a contemporary apologist of our time, someone that I grew up under uh, when I got saved as a young believer. Josh McDowell wrote a book. You can pick it up. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. In it, he records a story. And you can tell by this story, it's a little bit dated. But early in his spiritual journey, a guy came and knocked on his door. It was a book salesman, and he was selling these books called The Great Writings of the Western World. 
And this guy came in and began to tell his story and try to sell his product. And for a half hour, he made this presentation. And when he got finished, Josh McDowell, a great defender of the faith, he said, now let me tell you, you told me about your books. Let me tell you about the greatest book ever written. And the guy interrupted him and said, hey, I'm not here to hear about the Bible. And he said, I listened to you for a half hour. Give me five minutes. And he told this man about the red thread of redemption, about this, about this collaboration of from the beginning to the end, this one continuous story is told. And he asked the man, he said this, he said, do me a favor. He said, what do you think would happen if just 10 authors from the same generation, speaking the same language, from the same area, wrote on one controversial topic, what would you have? The man thought for a minute, he said, you would have a conglomeration, you just have a, a group of varied opinions. He said, but in the book, 66 books, 44 authors, over 1,500 years and three languages, you have one opinion that there is a good God reaching a broken man. Two days later, that man came back to Josh McDowell's house and surrendered his heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ because there's something special about this book that we call the Bible. And let me just tell you this. The Bible itself claims its own inspiration. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, come on, read it with me. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So I, I get it right away. Some of you are like, okay, pastor, that's circular reasoning. You're telling us the Bible's true because the Bible claims it's true. I get it. The reason I'm showing you that verse is not to validate its inspiration, but I'm telling you that Christians don't project inspiration on it. I'm showing you to say it claims inspiration. So again, we're going to dig a little deep. It's going to get a little muddy, but we're going to get through it, right? Okay, y'all need to get some coffee if you can't do it. Here's an acronym that will help you move through the reliability of Scripture. and Just some basic things that I want to give you. First, it's this acronym, MAPS. Everybody say MAPS. The letter M stands for manuscript evidence. I can tell you I'm losing you already. Sweet Lord, help us out. Manuscript evidence, here's what it means. Basically, here's what it means is there are lots of copies. Manuscript evidence, it's not a Bible topic. Manuscript evidence is an idea with any classical or historical literature. And here's basically what manuscript evidence proves is, is this copy, is it true to what the original is? Or has it changed? Has it evolved? Does it say something different? That's what manuscript evidence is, is it looks at the copies and says, is this true to the original? Okay, so here's, here's what I would say, because that's the claim of some, like, how can we trust the Bible? It's been changed, and it's been added to, and it's been altered over the years. If I said this, if I said, hey, uh, I'm going I'm to write, write just a one-page one note, and I would ask five of you to copy that one time, and I would tell you five, go each get five friends and have them copy at one time, and those five each get five, just five generations, we'd have 4,000 copies. Now, how many people in this room believes that if that happened, I wrote a copy, five, 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 4,000 copies, how many people believe that there would be some changes and some differences in those 4,000 copies? Because we're smart. Nobody's perfect. But here's what I want you to know is those 4,000 copies wouldn't change the content. People wouldn't add paragraphs. People wouldn't change sentences. Probably what you would have are some misspellings. You might have some changes in where the comma is or might have some changes. But ultimately, if you pulled all 4,000 copies together, you could tell clearly what the original said. You could see where changes came, but the content wouldn't change. 
Now, I just want you to know something. That's exactly what we have in the Bible. There are copies. There are lots of copies. We're going to get into that in a minute. But ultimately, experts with all classical literature, not just Bible, but with all, they're able to pull them together and say, yeah, there's been some changes, but the changes are small. They're minute. And you can ultimately look and see what the original documents said. Let me give you a great example. In 1947, there was a young uh, shepherd boy. He was throwing rocks into a cave. And uh, he's throwing this rock on the, on the west side of Israel, in, in the Judean side. And he throws a rock into a cave. And to his shock, he doesn't hear the echo of a rock come back. He hears the shatter of glass. He goes into the cave and he makes an incredible archaeological discovery known today as the Dead Sea Scrolls, 1946, 1947. He unearthed all these things. Inside of all these ancient documents is a scroll of the book of Isaiah. Now, here's why that's important. Because the world waited with bated breath. Because the earliest copy that we had of the book of Isaiah, until that copy that was discovered in that cave, there was a thousand year gap. And the whole world said, watch, there's going to be differences and variations and it's going to have been changed. And we're going to prove for once the Bible's wrong. And they took the earliest copy that we had, they laid it next to that copy that was discovered, a thousand year gap. And you know what they found? Isaiah 53 had 17 changes in it. That sounds like a lot. But let me qualify those 17 changes. Because Isaiah 53 is, is the prophecy of the suffering servant, that Jesus would carry the weight of the sin of the world for us, and he would die in our place, and we could find forgiveness and grace and hope. In those 17 changes, 10 of them were spelling changes. Spelling changes like this, the way they spelled things then from when they originally spelled, like you would change the name Christie with a K to maybe a CH. It doesn't change the name, it just changes the spelling. Three of the changes were the way they wrote the letters. It had evolved over time. Four of the changes were style. Style like this. If I said, if I originally wrote that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and later someone changed it, we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ the Lord. It doesn't change the content. It's just style. Ultimately, none of those 17 changes change the content of the message of a prophecy of Jesus coming and rescuing us. I'm telling you that's great news. And we were able to stand and say, God has preserved his word for thousands of years. That what we have today, we have hope, is a reflection of what was originally written. I'll tell you this real quick. Here's what they do today. This is true, again, for all classical literature. All ancient writings are authenticated in two ways. Now, when I say authenticated, again, what they're saying is, how do we know the copy we're holding is true to the original? They do two things. Number one, they check the number of copies. How many copies have been made? Now, I know you would think the more, the worse. The more, the better. Here's why. Because if you only have one copy, you don't have anything to compare it to. I mean, maybe there was a thousand changes. We don't know. So the more copies you have, the better. Everybody say that. The more copies you have, the what? The better. Hang with me, people. Number two, how closely the copies can be dated to the original writings. So you want it closer. So from the time the original, you want it as close as possible because if it dates out a long time, there could be some changes there. Let me give you some. Y'all got to just smile, wink, nod, shout, do something, help a brother out. Listen, listen, some of you, I know you slept through this in high school. I know it. I did too. My high school teacher used to get high at lunch. It's a fact. So he was a unique teacher. In college, you went to college. If you had global history, if you had world history, Here's what I want you to know. Here's the confidence I want you to have. If you ask anybody today, if you ask anybody today, how do we know what happened during the Roman Empire? 
everybody will point to a guy. His name is Tacitus. Anybody recognize that name from world history? Tacitus, he was the, he was the Roman recorder. He was responsible for Roman history. Let me tell you about Tacitus because there are, he has, there are 20 copies. Everybody say 20. They have found 20 copies of Tacitus's writings. And the earliest copy they can find dated is a thousand years, the copy from when the original was written. And nobody questions that that's true. Everybody says that's reliable. The Bible, we have more manuscript evidence than Pliny, Aristotle, Homer, Tacitus. In fact, again, Tacitus has 20 copies. The New Testament has 24,000 copies in existence that we found. How close is it together? Tacitus, whose information is never questioned or considered suspect, there's a thousand-year gap between the earliest copy we have and when it was originally written. The gap between the New Testament, when it was written, and the earliest copy we have is 60 years. 60 years, a thousand. 20 copies, 24,000 copies. I'm just telling you today that you can have confidence that the Bible you hold in your hand, that God has held it true over hundreds and thousands of years. That's some great news. Manuscript evidence. Let me, let me give you some more real quick. Roll through this. Archaeological evidence. I know I'm just getting geeked up. Just some of you like, I didn't know I came to a... Archaeological evidence. Here's why this is important. Because if you read your Bible, right, there's all these names and places and people that we can't pronounce. Don't you wish, like, Bob begat Larry and Larry begat Tom and Tom begat... It's, you know, these names, and I'll be honest, if you're ever sitting in church and you hear a pastor reading names, he's making them up. I don't know how to pronounce them, but I know you don't know how to pronounce them either, so you think I know how to pronounce them. That's true. That's a fact. But here's the thing. As you read it, make no mistake, there's events, there's people, there are places. And for years, all the experts who denounced the Bible as being inspired of God's word, they would say things like this, and at the time it was true. Nineveh is not true. Nineveh is a city recorded in the Bible, and we can't find any evidence of Nineveh. Therefore, the Bible's untrue. The Assyrian people that's recorded in Scripture, we can find no evidence of any people called the Assyrians. Therefore, the Bible's not true. On and on and on. This person didn't exist. That time, they said King David is a person that never existed. Here's what I want you to know today is that the more archaeological people dig, the more they find that the word of God is 100% true. The more they dig, the more they validate what God has recorded in his word. Let me just, there are lots of examples. Let me just give you just one. Uh, my family, we do, at Christmas, we do this. We've been doing this since our kids were, were babies, literally. And we continue this tradition in our family every year. That is before we open presents, we read the birth of Jesus. We read the Gospel of Luke. Anybody else do that? It's really hard when you have kids that all they want to do is open presents and you want to read the Bible. It's, I'm telling you, it's tough. You need Jesus in that moment. So we sit down and we read the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, and it starts like this, something like this. It's not word for word. But basically, that Caesar Augustus decreed that every man should go back to his own hometown when, when Quirinius was governor of Syria and be counted. For years, for years, all the archaeologists said this. Uh, they would say, first of all, there was no census in the Roman Empire. The Bible's wrong. There was no census. Number two, they said, in Quirinius, there is no Quirinius. We can find no record in history of a Quirinius, so the Bible's wrong. And then they gave their own opinion, and they taught this for years. Even if the Roman Empire 
did a census, which they didn't. But if they did, it would be foolish to make everybody go back to their own hometown. That's not how they would do it. Well, archaeological people dug and dug and dug. You know what they found? One more time, the Bible was validated by archaeology. What they found was this, that Caesar, that the Roman Empire did do census. In fact, it was Caesar Augustus that did the very first census. Number two, they not only found that Quirinius was real, they found that he was not only the governor of Syria once, he was actually the governor of Syria two different times. And they actually found and discovered actually one of the original parchments announcing from Caesar Augustus the census for every man to go back to his own hometown. One more time, validating the truth of Scripture. I'm just telling you, I think that's pretty amazing. Let me tell you why I'm telling you this, because I hear this story all the time. If you're in college, some of you have been through college, listen, I think education is important. I think it's, it's important, but I'm just telling you, I'm tired of young people stepping onto university campuses and having their faith dismantled by professors telling us the Bible isn't true. I'm telling you there's plenty of evidence that you can hold to the truth of Scripture in the inspiration of God's Word. Archaeological evidence. I'm just telling you, it is absolutely amazing. In fact, one scholar said this about the New Testament. All of the people, all of the places, all the events recorded. He said 99.6% of the New Testament has, corroborative, uh, has been corroborated by outside historical evidence. That means you look at the people, you look at the places, you look at the events, you look at the cities, and they're all outside res- there's all outside references saying it's all true. The longer they dig, the more they find the Bible's true. I love it. Keep on digging, baby. Dig, baby, dig. Dig, baby, dig. <laughs> I made that up for your entertainment. <laughs> Number three, prophecy. Everybody say prophecy. Now, prophecy is not that weird thing that sometimes we do in charismatic churches, and that's biblical, but I'm, it can be weird. Prophecy is throughout the Bible there are prophecies where God's prophets moved by the Spirit spoke and declared something was coming in the future. In fact, there are literally hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament and New Testament. The majority of those have been fulfilled that are in the Old Testament. Let me hear some some really good news. Because for a long time, again, higher criticism, people that looked at the Bible and said it wasn't true, they would say things like this. Well, the documents we find recording the prophecies, we believe that were written much sooner, and the writers kind of threw things in to make it look like it was much earlier. Therefore, they're not prophecies. They're things that already happened, and they made it look like it hadn't happened yet. But to their own demise, the more they study, the more they're able to more accurately date the things that they find, therefore showing these transcripts, these manuscripts they find are written right when they said, which is before the events they prophesied. Therefore, validating the prophecies and their fulfillment are divine. They are inspired. Someone spoke something before it happened. Let me give you two examples. Can I give you two? I'm going to give them anyways, but I just need some feedback. Let me give you two because one of them is my favorite. When I, my first year in Bible college, right? Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. He prophesied about this guy. You can look it up, King Cyrus. And here was his prophecy. Isaiah prophesied that there would be a king that would come. His name is Cyrus, names him. That Cyrus would come and he would decree that Israel, I'm sorry, that Jerusalem would be built and the temple foundation would be laid. Now, here's what's weird about it. When Isaiah wrote that in 700 BC, Jerusalem was already built. The temple was already in place. So you think, (laughs) uh, Isaiah, uh, heads up, brother, it's already there. But This was prophecy because 100 years later in 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar moved in with the Babylonian army and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and tore down and destroyed the temple. Fifty years later, the Persian Empire took over the Babylonian Empire. Also, they took conquest of the city of Jerusalem. Ten years after that, there was a king who rose up. 
Do anybody want to take a guess what his name might be? His name was Cyrus, and Cyrus issued a decree that the people of Israel would go back and rebuild the city of Israel and relay the foundation of the temple. Come on, almost 200 years before it happened. Let me give you one more because this one still astounds scholars today. Daniel. Daniel is a prophet also in the Old Testament. Daniel wrote in 500 B.C. lots of things about coming empires, but here's one thing specifically he said. He wrote and prophesied that there would be a global kingdom that would be cut off. It would just stop. And that one kingdom would turn into four kingdoms, and that four kingdoms would turn into two kingdoms, that, two t- that the two kingdoms would turn back into one kingdom, and the Messiah would be born. And you're like, what? Well, let me tell you what history records. History records it was a great empire. It was Alexander the Great, one of the greatest global empires ever on the face of the planet, ruled by a, name, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great. Anybody recognize his name? He was murdered at 32 years of age. His kingdom was cut off. That one kingdom, his four generals took over and divided the kingdom into four kingdoms. Those four kingdoms moved into two kingdoms. Some of you guys remember this in history, the Seleucid and the the Ptolemaic kingdoms. Those two kingdoms came back together underneath the great Roman Empire, and then Jesus was born. I'm telling you, it is amazing that God keeps fulfilling prophecy. Let me give you a couple more. Jesus. There are 356 prophecies in the Old Testament about who the Messiah was, where he would be born, things he would do, things that no one could ever self-fulfill. Let me just give you a couple. The Bible tells us that the Messiah would come from the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would come from the family line of King David. It tells us that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would flee to Egypt as a young child. The Bible tells us that ultimately one day would come and he would be betrayed by a friend, that he would be crucified, uh, that he would be speared in the side, that no bones would be broken, that his clothes would be gambled for, uh, that, um, that he would be buried among the rich. All of those things are prophesied about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And I'm telling you, each and every one of those prophecies have been fulfilled. Y'all, I'm, y'all are pretty excited about that. Let me, let me just give you just one I mentioned, but let me just give you one because I think this is pretty amazing. Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified. Roman Empire, that was their primary, most fierce way of execution. Do you know the Bible prophesied that the Messiah would die by crucifixion a thousand years before it happened and 500 years before anybody was ever crucified? Oh, I, my fault. I don't know y'all wrote books like the Bible. My bad. I thought I was impressing some people with how incredible our God is and how he's kept the book, but y'all got it. Okay, my, my fault. Y'all know me. I, I, love, I love math, so it always goes back to math at some point. Uh, right here. Statistical probability. Statistical probability. That means what's the likelihood of something happening? So I told you there's over 350 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. If you take just seven of them, what's the likelihood of one person fulfilling just seven of them? Let me give you seven. Jesus was betrayed by a friend for 30 coins that were silver, that were cast down into the temple floor, and those silver coins were used to purchase Potter's Field. All of those seven things are recorded as prophecy in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the life of Jesus, ultimately through the betrayal of his friend and disciple, Judas. A mathematician, professor, he decided he would take this up and say, what's the chance? I mean, because I mean, if it's possible for anybody to do that, then Jesus isn't so special. Here's what him and his classmates found out is that the chance of one, prefer, one person just fulfilling seven, not 350, just seven, was one in 10 to the 17th power. Here's the number. 
Ah, that's a big number. Big numbers don't mean anything. Let me give you some context for it. It would be as if we took the state of Texas and we covered every square inch with silver dollars, two foot deep. And we took just one silver dollar and put an X on it. And we took a blindfolded man and dropped him anywhere he wanted dropped in the state of Texas and he could pick up one coin. The chance of him picking up that coin is the same chance as Jesus fulfilling just seven of the 350 prophecies about his life. One more time, validating the truth and inspiration of God's word. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just ama it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me, right? Because again, and here's the question, and, and, and someone asked this, and so I'll answer it. Some of you might be thinking, well, if the, the evidence is so clear with archaeological data, if it's so clear with prophecy, if it's so clear, then how come unbelievers don't believe? How come the professionals don't just buy in? Here's why. You ready? Because they'll tell you, we don't believe in miracles and we don't believe in God. Now show us your data. Why? Well, I, I can't show you the data because it includes God and miracles. Well, we don't believe in God and we don't believe in miracles, so show me your data. When you discount, when you discount evidence, you cannot ever come to the proper conclusion. Are you all tracking with me? So, so again, they just keep kicking things out and keep trying to destroy the faith. And the more they try to destroy it, God keeps standing up. God keeps holding his word true. God keeps making sure we can trust it and we can rely on it, right? There's a story of a young boy he's sitting on a park bench and man, he's like celebrating God. He's like, man, God, you're awesome. You're wonderful, man. God, you're amazing. And this studied man walks up to him and says, young man, what are you celebrating? He says, I just read in the Bible that God allowed his people, the nation of Israel, to walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. He said, young man, don't you know that scientists have proven during that time of the year that the nation of Israel crossed, that where they crossed, it was probably only 10 inches of water? That's not a miracle. And the young boy thought for a second. He's like, man, praise God. That's awesome, man. That's even greater news. He said, what are you celebrating? I just told you what you read it and true he said, think about it. God drowned the entire Egyptian army in 10 inches of water. <laughs> Let's move in just for a few minutes. Time's, time's edging away quick. I want to just focus on the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. Specifically the Gospels. The writer of what we're about to read is Peter, Simon Peter, who was one of the disciples, one of the main apostles with Jesus. He wrote this later on in his life to Christians. He said this. He said, so I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I'm gone. He wanted to make sure the testimony that he experienced, people remembered it. You know why? Because it's life-changing. He goes on. He says this. He says, for we were not making up clever stories. Everybody say clever stories. The Greek word here is the Greek word mythos, which is where we get the word myth. He's saying, I don't want you to, I don't want you to think that the story of Jesus is a myth. Well, how do we know it's not a myth? He says, because when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. Cedar Peter wasn't repeating a story he heard. He was repeating a story that he lived. It wasn't a myth that was passed down generation to generation to generation that changed and evolved over time. It was his personal experience. And he not only seen it with his own eyes, he says, when, we received, when Jesus, when he received the honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. That's the voice of heaven to the Father speaking over Jesus. You know what Peter said? Peter said, we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. You know what he's saying? 
He said, I want to keep passing on the testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not because it's a myth that I've believed. He said, because I've experienced it. I lived it. I was with him when he walked on water. I was beside him when he called Lazarus out of the grave. I stood beside him when he cast demons out of people. I was there when he healed multitudes. I heard the voice of heaven firsthand. It's not a story or a myth. It's my experience. Four things, real quick, and we'll wrap this up. Four reasons. The Gospels could not be missed. So for the people who say, well, it's just a myth, it's just a legend evolved over time, four quick reasons why there's no way the Gospels could be missed. Number one, the timing is too early for the Gospels to be legend. What I mean is this. From the time that the events of the life of Jesus happening in the early first century, in the time of the writing, the first time the Gospel was written, is about 60 years. I'm sorry, about 20 years, 20 years. The latest John is about six years, so 20 years. So Jesus lives, dies, comes back from the dead, during his life does incredible miracles. At that time, uh, tradition was passed on through oral tradition. It was passed on through storytelling, but they, they wanted to make sure we don't lose this powerful story. So they started writing the gospels. The first one is recorded 20 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me tell you why that's important, because it's way too early for myth to evolve. If someone said, hey, that didn't happen, you know what you could say? No, go talk, to, go talk to old lady Jones down the road because she was there when the miracles happened. Go talk to old man Johnson because he was standing right there when Jesus healed his son. There's no way it could be a myth because there were still living witnesses that could validate the story being told. Let me say it this way because I know I have a room full of Alabama fans. Let me play with your emotions if I could for just a moment. Now, what if I was to tell you, what if I was to put out, what if I was to write a thing and I was to post it out there for all the world to see, especially here in Alabama, and I said this, for the last five years, Coach Urban Meyer and the Ohio State Buckeyes has, have absolutely pummeled Coach Saban in Alabama five years straight and won the national championship. In fact, they've never even scored a point against us. Alabama has been blown out of the building. Could that story stand? Why? Because you all are alive. Because you would say that's not true. Now, what you would have to admit is Ohio State has won the most recent championship since Alabama has won one. And they are rated number one in the preseason. I just have to say those two things. But my point is, I couldn't tell a lie while there's living witnesses because all of you would say it's not true. The time Jesus lived, died, and came back from the dead, there were lots of living witnesses. In fact, Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15, he says Jesus came back to Mary and Martha, and he came back to the disciples at one time. He showed himself alive to over 500 people. They're still alive themselves. Go ask him. They've seen him alive. I'm telling you, the time is too short. Number two. Number two. The content is too counterproductive to be legend. The stuff, that, the stuff that's recorded in the Gospels, it would have never caught traction in that generation. The things that are recorded go against culture. They go against the grain of what was accepted and what was popular. If you're going to write a story, you want people to get on board quick. Number one, Jesus declared himself to be God. No man is God unless he's God. Why would you record that? Women at that time, women were property. They weren't people. They might have had a voice, but they couldn't speak a word. 
They were rejected as witnesses. But you know, when the stories are written, when the gospels are written, we find out that the women are the primary financiers to the ministry of Jesus. It were women that were some of the key disciples of Jesus. It was women that went to the tomb the first day. They were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. I'm telling you, I love me some women, and so did the gospels. They included something that should have been excluded if it was intended to be just a made-up story. Number three, the gospels are too detailed. They're just too detailed. If you're going to write a story, you want it as covert as possible. You don't want people to be able to question sources. But it's almost like the Bible goes out of its way. It's almost like the writers of the Gospels went out of their way to include so much detail that you could never question it. Let me just give you one example. Y'all remember when Jesus, right, he's beaten, he's carrying his cross to Golgotha, and, and he falls, and, and the Bible tells us that he had someone, the, the Romans had someone else carry his cross. Y'all, are you all familiar with that story? Here's how Mark records it, kind of cool. A passerby, watch this, a passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Poor Rufus, that guy lost his lunch money every day, I bet. (laughs) But here's my point is, why not just say in this made-up story we're telling, hey, this guy had to carry the cross of Jesus. Why record his name was Simon? And he was from Cyrene. And if you want to be clear which Simon from Cyrene we're talking about, he's the dad that has two sons named Alexander and Rufus. You can go to him today, and he'll tell you Jesus was crucified because he's the cat that carried the cross. Are you all hearing me? I'm glad you're all excited about this. Day. I'm pretty fired up. <laughs> lastly, lastly, right here, the message was too costly to be legend. If you're here and you're still like, I, I don't know, why would you write a story that would get you killed? Because you all know, the 11 reigning apostles after Judas betrayed Jesus, they all were murdered. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was filleted alive. James was beheaded. John was the only one that died a natural death, but that was after he was stoned. That was after he was boiled alive and on and on and on. Why would you, why would you die for a lie? Now, you might say, well, people die for lies all the time. Right? David Koresh, he died for a lie. The maniacs that flew planes into the Twin Towers, in my estimation, they died for a lie. Here's the difference. They believed it. If you wrote it and you know it's a lie, why would you die for it? Way too much at stake. Here's how the story ends right here, First, uh, Second Peter. Again, Peter's writing this, and he finishes this way, and I love this. Are you all with me? i got three minutes and ten seconds. We're going we're gonna to sprint to the finish line. This is what Peter says. Watch this. Because of that experience, because I live with Jesus, because I seen what he did, because I heard what was said, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. Here's what he's saying. Has anybody read anything in the Old Testament? You're like, I don't know about that. They blew trumpets and walls fell down. Really? Adam and Eve were the first people in the garden. Really? I don't know. A guy was swallowed by a fish. Hmm. I'm going to be honest. I have questions about the Old Testament. You know what they said? They had questions too. And here's the conclusion they came to. We live with a guy that did miracles. We live with a guy who predicted his death and resurrection and pulled it off. And he taught that there was a real Adam and Eve. He taught that there was a real Jonah that got swallowed by a real fish. And I don't know about it, but I'm going with the guy that predicted his death and resurrection and pulled it off. So because of him... We have greater confidence. So when I read the Gospels, that gives me confidence of all the rest of the Bible. Keep going. We're almost done. 
Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or of human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. Here's what he's saying. So is it God's word or is it man's word? Yes. God didn't pick up a pen and a piece of parchment in heaven, write it and send it, FedEx. Men wrote the Bible as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This word moved is the same word, is the same word moved that would describe the wind blowing the sail of a ship. The ship is independent of the wind, but it's the wind that moves, it pushes in a certain direction to a certain destination, that ship. So men were inspired by the Holy Spirit that wrote us God's word. And through thousands of years, God has preserved it. That what you hold in your hand today, you can have confidence, is God's standard for life and faith. That you can have hope and what you have is from him. But at the end of the day, I can tell you my greatest piece of evidence that God's word is reliable, the Bible is true. It's because I know the author myself. I met him firsthand. March 19, 1989. And he changed my life. He changed my actions. He changed my heart. He changed the trajectory of my life forever. I met him firsthand. And if you'll meet him, he'll change your life too. I'll pray for you. Father, I pray that God, you'll take this big old, <laughs> big old ball of information. And I pray, God, some way with your help, make it revelation in our hearts. That, God, we can have a trust that your word is true. That we can have hope in spite of what people might say. That, God, it is your word. And we can rest in it. But, Father, I pray for those here today that, God, maybe have never made the decision, never put their trust in you, never said yes to a Savior that came, that died on a cross and rose victorious so we could have forgiveness in life. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Steve, I, I maybe never heard this story. I never believed it or I never accepted it. I just want to give you a chance as we close. If you want to say yes, yes to God's love for you, yes to his grace. I'm telling you, we need it. We're lost without it. We can't save ourselves. But God loves you enough that he sent his son on a rescue mission. He's reaching out to you and all you have to do is reach back. And in that step of faith, the Bible says we're saved. We become children of God. And so... All across this room, if you're here and you say, Pastor Steve, I want to say yes to God's grace. Today, I want to say yes to his forgiveness for my life. I'm telling you, he loves you. All you have to do is say yes. And if you want to say yes, as I close you in prayer, I want you to lift a hand all over this room. If that's you, you say, Pastor Steve, pray for me. Today, I want to say yes to God. I want to say yes to his grace and yes to his love. Come on, all over this room. I see some hands. I want you to lift them real high so I can see them and just hold them up all over this room. Come on, don't miss this opportunity. If you feel God tugging on your heart, man, now's your opportunity to say yes. I see a hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? I'm going to close this in prayer. And if you lifted a hand especially, I want you to pray this. Out of your heart to God. You can pray it out of your mouth. And we're all going to pray together. Every voice, pray this. Say, Jesus, I believe you love me. And you paid a price to save me. Today I surrender my heart to you. I put my faith in your death, in your resurrection, in your grace for me. I believe right now that I'm saved and I become your child. In Jesus' name. And everybody who agreed said amen. Come on, can we thank God today?